Esther chapter 3. On February 18, 1997, a little bit over 21 years ago, three teenagers, ages 13, 16, and 17, went to a high school basketball game right here in the state of Pennsylvania. And despite the 17-year-old seeming way too young, at least I think that at this point, way too young for someone to have a driver's license, this 17-year-old boy was privileged with the keys of his father's brand new truck. And he gave rides home for the other two young boys. Just seconds after pulling out of the high school parking lot, the teenage driver grew impatient by the puttering of a compact vehicle that was in front of him. And he immediately attempted to pass the tinkering car on the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic in a one-lane road. But this inferior car, this compact car, had a driver that possessed no inferior sense of pride. And surely they, were, they had drug each other into an impromptu drag race with the, with the small car on the right-hand side and the truck on the left-hand side. And suddenly the small car slowed down. And so the driver of the truck was looking over his right shoulder and he perceived that this was victory, that the small car had conceded victory to the larger, more dominant vehicle with the toughest driver on the planet. And so, sensing this overwhelming victory, while still looking over his shoulder, the driver of the truck veered back into his rightful lane, unaware that he was approaching a busy intersection. Braking couldn't and didn't help at this point, as the truck caused a four-car accident. The subsequent police reports indicated that the truck was going 87 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone, and the skid marks of the vehicle measured 136 feet prior to hitting the other, uh, prior to impact, prior to hitting the other vehicles. All three teenagers survived, as well as everyone else that was involved in the crash. And not only that, but all three teenagers stepped out of the truck without a scratch, without any serious injuries. They all walked away. Now today they barely talk. They've all gone their separate ways. Nevertheless, if you were to gather these three together, all now in their mid to late 30s with several children uh, and ask them about their accident, they would all say that there is no explanation for their survival beside divine intervention. It is not just pure chance that they survived. And I can personally attest to this. The 13-year-old was my younger brother, Emmanuel. The 17-year-old was my good friend, T, and I was the 16-year-old. There's no natural reason why they, why we, why I survived this car accident. No natural reason. You see, you learn a few things when you go through experiences that you shouldn't have survived. Initially, I learned that life and death is in the hands of God. God has created all people in his image, and only God has the right to determine when life comes into the world and when life ends. Additionally, I learned that God is completely sovereign over all of his creation, including human beings, and uses people to accomplish his purposes. Whether or not they exactly know what's going on, he uses people to accomplish his purposes. And lastly, and especially, and especially important for our study together today, when you go through surviving a situation like this, you realize that God sometimes most, works most powerfully behind the scenes by providentially guiding the circumstances of a given situation without being directly noticed or without being directly invoked or without being even noticed. For example, I remember vividly 
telling my brother to put his seatbelt on. He wasn't going to put his seatbelt on as we were leaving the parking lot. I remember vividly telling him to put his seatbelt on. I remember if we were in a smaller truck or if we were going a little bit faster, but if we were going 97 instead of 87, or if the impact was in a, were in a different part of the car, things, the result could have been different. But God maneuvers circumstances in order to carry out his purposes in ways that in, in most cases are completely undetected by human beings. And it's only sometimes after a given, any particular given situation that it becomes possible to look back and see God's sovereign hand guiding the circumstances related to a particular event. There is no biblical book in which this is more evident than the book of Esther. See, Esther is a book that's filled with foreshadowing and irony and ultimately depicts the salvation of the Jewish people through much, much bloodshed. And all of this happens without the name or the title of God ever being mentioned. There isn't one small miracle in the book of Esther. There isn't one prayer in the book of Esther. All of this happens with God, without God being mentioned. And the book of Esther provides us as believers a framework by which we are able to see how God providentially works through people to carry out his purposes and to fulfill his promises. Let's begin reading in Esther chapter 3 where the major conflict of the book begins. And after reading, we're going to backtrack and provide a little bit of historical information before moving through the narrative. Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Hagan the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they said to Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as he had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth, month, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then we read about how Haman's wicked plan went into effect in verse 13, if you just go down to verse 13 with me, which says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the great privilege it is to come to a public place and to study your word. And Lord, we come to your word expecting to hear from you, and we thank you that we have the privilege of doing that if we've put faith in you. And we do, Lord. We, decide, we, we, de we desire to hear from you individually, and we decide to hear from you as a body. And so we pray now that you would teach through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, teach, instruct individuals, Lord, and instruct your whole community. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Imagine a holiday in which kids could dress up, wander around the neighborhood in costumes, make a bunch of joyful noise, and receive sweets from all over the place. Now, of course, you're thinking, hey, Dr. Dom, there's no need for extensive argument. There's no need for an extensive imagination, right, to recognize a holiday in which people do these things. I mean, we have Halloween. Well, I'm really sorry if that's your response. To, I'm really sorry to hear that you consider Halloween an actual holiday. But imagine a Halloween without ghosts or zombies or all of the other Christian conscience issues. That day is called Purim. At least that's how Purim is celebrated in our day and age, on the 14th and the 15th days of the Jewish month of Adar, depending on where one lives. The reason why people dress up is because Purim is considered a joyous holiday in which is, it, that is celebrated by religious and non-religious people alike, though a bit differently. And Jewish people celebrate in this day, or in these two days, the salvation of their people group as is depicted in the biblical book of Esther. In fact... One of the ways in which Jewish people respond or celebrate is by reading Megillat Esther, or the scroll of Esther, the entire book, in one sitting in the synagogue or public square. It's through reading this book that the Jewish people are reminded of, the salvation, of their salvation, the salvation of their ancestors from the hands of their enemies, especially the hands of wicked Haman. In fact, every time Haman's name is mentioned in the public reading of Megillat Esther or the Scroll of Esther, those in attendance will boo and rattle noisemakers like you see up here. They're called Rashanim to demonstrate their displeasure with his memory. Along with reading the entire book of Esther, Megillat Esther, Jewish people celebrate with all types of festive activities. They eat Ozne Haman, which are those excellent cookies that you see up there, and sing songs like this one. <coughs> Shoshanat Yaakov, Tzahala Vesamecha, Birotam Yachad, Tchelet Mordechai. Shoshanat Yaakov, Tzahala Vesamecha, Birotam Yachad, Tchelet Mordechai. Chuatam, Haita Lenetzach, Vetikvatam, Bekol Dolado, Baruch Mordechai, Hayehudi, Baruch Mordechai, Hayehudi. They clapped the first service. Let me tell you. Now, you all read the transliteration up there. Why in the world would Jewish people sing a song like this on Purim? Well, in order to understand the reason for this holiday Purim, or even the word Purim, it's necessary to know a little bit about the historical setting of the biblical book of Esther. You see, the historical setting of the biblical book of Esther goes back to the 6th century before Christ, in, in, in which, and, and during the 6th century, late 6th century, that is 586 before Christ, the Jewish people from the Jerusalem area were taken into exile by the Babylonians. And within about 50 years, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, which brings us to the time in which Esther takes place. That is, there were many Jewish people that were not in Jerusalem, but rather in the Persian Empire, dispersed throughout the Persian Empire. And that is even the geographical setting in which uh, the book of Esther takes place, in the city of Susa. Now, the beginning of the book of Esther tells us a little bit more concerning about the historical setting of the book. We read, if you just go to Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, now in the days of Ahasuerus, that is how that name is pronounced, Ahasuerus. Some of your Bibles might say Xerxes, which is a transliteration of the Persian name. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So here we observe that the king of Persia during the time of the book of Esther is this Persian king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. And his kingdom is huge, as you can see on the map uh, uh, just behind me. 127 provinces from the continent of Africa through East Asia. And in the third year of his reign, the king has a big feast, and we're told that the kingdom's aristocrats are present in the palace in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And it's during this feast, during this festival, festival that for reasons unstated in the text, King Ahasuerus calls his wife, Queen Vashti, to appear before her and, or him and, and his nobles in her royal crown. Now Vashti, again for unstated reasons, refuses to come before the king, which absolutely enrages him. And so, based upon the counsel of the king's friends, the king divorces his wife, Vashti. And upon divorcing Vashti, he misses her. So the king's servants have another idea. They travel around the city of Susa, and they gather the most attractive young maiden so the king might choose another wife from these young women. And that's when Mordecai and Hadassah come on the scene. Now, Hadassah is Esther, but her Hebrew language, that is her Jewish name, was Hadassah. And in chapter 2, verse 7, we read the relationship between the two, that is between Mordecai and Esther, and that he, that is Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, the, two, the, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when, the father and mother and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. And then we read in the very next verse what happened to Esther as the king's servants rounded up the beautiful women of the city. We read in verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in, the, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, here there's an interesting turn in the story. When Esther's taken into custody, into the custody of the king, she's explicitly commanded by her cousin Mordecai not to reveal her identity as a Jew. Now, we are not told why she's commanded not to reveal her identity, but this provides an interesting point of tension or foreshadowing for the reader because the king falls in love with Esther. And he falls in love with Esther and marries Esther without knowing her full identity as a Jewish person. Now the story could end here, right? I mean, it would still be a pretty good story. The king falls in love with Esther and, and live happily ever after. But that's not where the story ends because there's a few questions that linger here. Why would Mordecai tell Esther not to reveal she's a Jew? And, and, and what's going to happen if the king finds out? Now that leads us to the passage of scripture that we read today, chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, Haman the Agagite is advanced to what appears to be something like a prime minister role of the kingdom. He's second in command and he's given the king's signet ring. And upon taking that office, the king commands, for some reason unstated in the text, that all should bow down and pay homage to Haman. Yet for some reason, only Mordecai seems to refuse to bow down. And for some reason, Mordecai declares he's a Jew. In chapter 3, verse 4, he reveals that, doing the very thing that he told Esther not to do. Now, Mordecai's revelation of a, as a Jewish person in this text, mentioned together with the fact that he is depicted as refusing to bow down, doesn't seem to be coincidental. 
all of us who are somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments know that the Second Commandment explicitly states, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow, not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So maybe, maybe Mordecai admitted that he was a Jew and refused to bow down because treating something or someone like God was where this particular Jewish person had to draw the line. Maybe there was a crisis of conscience. Other commentators would say that maybe Haman had something engraved on his clothing that, that was a pagan symbol, and so Mordecai wouldn't bow down. We don't know the, the specifics, but we do know a few things. We do know that Haman hates the fact that there would be people that wouldn't bow down to him. And we do know that not only does he hate this, but he starts to hate Mordecai. He hates Mordecai personally. And not only does he hate Mordecai personally, but he develops a hatred for the people of Mordecai, who Mordecai had implicated by admitting that he was a Jew. For, her, for Haman, for prideful Haman, it wasn't enough that everyone else in the kingdom would bow down to him. It wasn't enough. And it wasn't enough only to kill Mordecai. He had to kill everyone that wouldn't bet. He had to kill the people of Mordecai. Haman determined to kill all of the Jewish people because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And so Haman, in his position of power, casts lots, or Purim. He casts lots in order to determine the dreadful day in which the Jewish people would be put to death, as we read in chapter 3, verse 7. And it's coldly determined that all of the Jews, all of the Jews in the kingdom of Ahasuerus would be put to death on the 13th day of the month of Adar, almost a year or 11 months after the incident with the casting of lots. And through all of this, through that whole part of the narrative, in fact, through the entire narrative, God is not mentioned at all. At all. God is apparently not present. God's personal name, the personal name that he revealed to his covenant people of Israel is not mentioned once. God's title's not mentioned once. At, at, at the time when God's covenant people evidently needed him the most, he's apparently nowhere to be found. Friends, let's reflect for a moment. How many times in our life have we felt in need, desperate, physically and or spiritually destitute, perhaps even feeling like we're experiencing physical, emotional, spiritual death. Maybe you're feeling like that right now and God is nowhere to be found. He's not around. He's absent. He's just not there. But here's a principle that we learn through the rest of the book of Esther. Sometimes when situations look dire, sometimes when we're going through difficult situations and God seems to be conspicuously absent, God's right there, working everything out for his glory. Sometimes when we have absolutely no assurance that God is concerned about any given personal situation, because there's simply no, aware of his presence, no awareness of his presence, he is right there, intricately involved in the situation, just not revealing the details of his involvement. Here's the amazing thing that we have to be appreciative of readers of this narrative. God gives us as readers insight into a past occasion in which he's intricately involved in human affairs to carry out his purposes for the sake and the glory of his name and the growing of his kingdom. He lets us see this. It's this divine providence that we as readers start to see 
as God, without being named or officially credited with any actions, as God shapes the circumstances of the lives of our characters so that he might accomplish his purposes. So as we read this narrative, we are privileged with the opportunity to reflect upon how God might be using our specific circumstances, the specific circumstances in our lives in order to accomplish his purposes. So let's look specifically at a few of these circumstances in our, in our story that are clearly divinely guided. In our story, it just turns out that Esther, out of all women, found, favors, found favor in the eyes of the king. Esther. And it just turned out that Esther was a Jew. And it turns out that Esther had direct access to the king because of her position as queen. And it just turned out that Esther and Mordecai were related. Now, it just turned out that disobedient Mordecai, that is at least disobedient Mordecai to Haman, he was disobedient to Haman, it turns out that disobedient Mordecai had access to the Persian throne through his orphan cousin who he had raised. Now, all the women, now out of all the women the king could have married, out of all the women that could have had access to the throne, it turns out that he married not only one who was a Jew herself, but closely related to the one person who would not obey the, the command to bow to Haman. Now, this last, this last fact is key, because upon hearing about the, slaughter, the planned slaughter of the Jewish people, Mordecai dressed in clothes that represented mourning, and he went to the entrance of the king's gate. And this permitted him to have access to his very own cousin through a messenger, his very own cousin, Queen Esther, who he convinces to help herself and her people. In chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, we read Mordecai's message to Esther, which is a plea for help, personal help, and a plea for help on behalf of all of her people. This is what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That is, Esther, do not forget that you too are a Jew. You will feel the effects of Haman's wicked plot to kill us. But Queen Esther, it just so happens that you have been placed in a position of power and of influence for the sake of helping your people now. Esther, in turn, reports to the king and invites the king and Haman to a series of banquets. And it's at the second of these banquets that Esther reveals to her husband, the king, that not only is she a Jew, but she also reveals Haman's wicked plot to, to kill the Jews and how it would affect her. And as this was revealed, Haman pleads for his life, but to no avail, he's taken away and he is hung, or some of your translations might say something like impaled, he's put to death. But the redemption of the Jewish people still isn't complete. The king of Persia had sealed the edict to kill the, uh, to, to, to kill the Jews with his ring, and it couldn't be overturned. And this meant that another decree needed to be put in place to counteract the first decree. And we read the specifics of the second degree, decree in chapter 8, verse 11, which states, The king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to a kill, and to, to kill and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
This decree permitted the Jews to defend themselves against the king's initial command, and we read that over 75,000 people were killed in these two days of conflict. And by this, the annihilation of the Jewish people was avoided, and the preservation of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire was accomplished. But here's the irony here. This preservation of the Jewish people actually started on the very same day that Haman had, pl had plotted to kill them or start the massacre. As we read in chapter 9, verse 27, that the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time, uh, uh, at that time, the at, and at the time appointed every year. That is, the day after the, 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 that the, the annihilation of the Jews was supposed to begin, and two days after. Those are the days in which Purim is celebrated. So we see that the days that were intended to be days of annihilation for the Jewish people ended up being days of great salvation for the Jewish people, and hence, that's why they celebrate Purim. But, Throughout this whole narrative, where's God? He's not mentioned. Apparently not present. God's name's not mentioned. We've been through this, right? God's title's not mentioned. Salvation from the enemies of the Jews comes, and God's not even present to take credit for it. At the time when the Jewish people needed God the most, why is he not even mentioned? Let's, let's actually deal with these questions for a minute. Look, the reality of our story is the following. Despite what some traditions might say, might suggest concerning, about, concerning how honorable Esther and Mordecai actually were, here are a few simple observations of how these characters are depicted in the narrative that might help us understand, and might help us understand why God is not mentioned in the narrative. There seems, for example, to be no concern for the Jewish law by either of these two main characters. For example, unlike Daniel, Esther doesn't demonstrate any particular concern for dietary laws when she's taken into the court of a Gentile king. Additionally, Esther conceals her identity. That is, she lies by omission when she's taken into the king's court at the command of Mordecai. Mordecai commands her to lie by omission. And the implication of this is that Esther would have had to have violated the Torah. She would have had to have violated purity, for example, purity regulations. She would have had to have violated the Sabbath. She would have had to have violated, like I said, food laws. And it's not even until there's danger and perhaps maybe even a veiled threat by her cousin that Esther reveals her true identity as a Jewish person, that is, a person, as a, a member of the covenant community of God. And at the end of the day, Esther marries a Gentile king. Now, intermarriage with non-Jewish people isn't explicitly forbidden in the Bible, but we do not have any indication in this narrative that the king has any intention of following the true God of Israel. He is a pagan. Now, taking these things, these observations into consideration, it doesn't seem like Esther or Mordecai are particularly interested in the law of God that is the law that God gave his covenant people. And it doesn't seem like Esther or Mordecai were particularly interested in inviting God into this narrative. But despite that fact, despite the fact that God is not overtly present in the lives of these people, and God doesn't plainly, doesn't plainly show up in the book, God still demonstrates his ability to control all circumstances and all situations for his glory. 
But to what end here? To what end did God save the Jewish people while, quite frankly, not being invited into the story? Well, a biblical principle that we have to remember is the following. God doesn't save people because they are extraordinary in and of themselves. God saves people because he is a magnificent God and he demonstrates extraordinary love for humankind, despite all of us, by our own nature, not inviting God into our own story. You see, this is what we see through the divine providence in the book of Esther. This is what we see. God saved the Jewish people from their enemies not because they were extraordinary in and of themselves, not because they invited him into the narrative. God saved the Jewish people because he was and is an extraordinary, faithful God of integrity who keeps his promises. You see, all the way back in the first book of the Bible, the first half of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God promised a man named Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him. And God indeed, and this started to happen, God indeed, this happened by God choosing Abraham, and then Abraham's son Isaac, and then Jacob, Isaac's son. Again, not because of anything that they did. I mean, just read the narratives. It wasn't because of anything that they did. He chose them for his purposes. And as we continue to read throughout the Old Testament, we see that Jacob was renamed Israel, right? And Jacob had 12 sons. And one of those sons, Judah, the, the name from where we get the title Jewish or the Jewish people, one of those sons, Judah, was chosen to bear the royal lineage. And King David came from the people of Judah, right? And who was promised from King David? Well, Jesus, the Messiah, was a descendant of King David. And he came to the Jews, from the Jews. God was determined to carry out his promise of bringing blessings to all, bringing a blessing to all nations through the Jewish people by the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. One writer states it like this. Esther is, a par, Esther is part of a much larger story that runs all the way from Abraham to Christ and through him to the church. If Haman had succeeded... The Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed. And the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. There would have been no fulfillment in Christ and therefore no gospel and no Christian church. Nothing less than that was at stake. Our God is a God of integrity. Our God is a God who keeps his word. God's integrity is not contingent upon human beings. Our God does not, our God cannot let his word fail. And our God is willing to providentially work behind the scenes of humanity's vain activity and inattentiveness, quite frankly, to his work in order to carry out that which he has promised. The book of Esther is a part of our own heritage as Christians. And look, it's not just because it's a, it's a book that's tucked away in a section of the Old Testament where books are difficult to find. That's not why it's part of our heritage. Rather, it's, part of, uh, it's, a, it's another part of the great story that shows God's love for humanity by bringing someone from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David to save humankind from their problem of sin. The fact that God is not mentioned at all in this narrative is almost as like the book was written for us to know that it's during those times of silence Times in which we do not overtly see God's work. Times in which we cannot feel God. We feel like God is not around. It's those times when God's most active. 
And sometimes God's activity, God is active simply in the act of preserving, preserving life, saving life, so that he might accomplish his purposes to and through us. That is, purposes through and in us. You know, I think back on my story, and this is my story. It's only my story, right? But there are a thousand stories here. I think back on my story, and I think if I were to have died in that, in that car crash, and it's safe to say that I could have died or maybe even should have died, I would have died never really serious about my relationship with Christ, which didn't really happen until my second year at Westchester University. I would have never gone to college. I've never gone to graduate school. I would have never studied my PhD in Israel and, and, and lived and served in Israel, never done all that. I would have never had the opportunity to serve as a youth pastor and then a pastor. I would have never had the chance to help train hundreds of Bible college students uh, for, for, for ministry. And, and, and it's our goal that their ministry would be way better than my ministry could ever be, right? We never had the opportunity to do any of that. I never had the opportunity had I died in that car accident, I would have never had the privilege of meeting my wife. I would have never had the privilege of becoming father of these two children. And we pray also that these two children would affect the world, that they'd accept the Lord and affect the world in, in, in a greater way than I could ever imagine. But you all have your story. You have your stories. The preserving power of God is not limited to one people group that God saves for his purposes. My car accident was just a reflection of God's providence in my life. But you have surely have had one or two or three or 30 situations in your life, like my accident, that has demonstrated that God has kept you on this earth for his purposes, to be part of his sovereign plan, to participate in that sovereign plan. We are all benefactors of God's providence as God guides all circumstances for his glory, we as humans are blessed to be able to see what God does through people, including ourselves. Reading through the book of, of, of Esther is an occasion which we remember and celebrate God's promises to humankind in, this, in saving the ancestry of Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the world, your Savior, my Savior, our Savior. Reading this book is an occasion to praise God, not just for saving a particular people group, but more importantly, saving humankind through permitting his son to come and thereby keeping his word. 